and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are very excited to be here today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, this pandemic has been very difficult, understatement of the year, for a lot of people. But (laughs) if you are a Goldman Sachs executive that made (laughs) millions from Dogecoin, maybe you can go ahead and just call it a vacation because uh, (laughs) there was one executive who quit after making millions from Dogecoin. Oh, I hope he sold. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's sort of the key here. Like, you can only make the millions if you actually really realize those gains Mm -hmm. by converting it back into cash. The crypto asset Dogecoin in particular is down more than 30% this week. We have Elon Musk and his appearance on SNL in large part to thank for that. But even with that, it is still up by more than a thousand percent from the start of 2021, which is enormous. Aziz McMahon, which is like the coolest wrestler name I could ever imagine. (laughs) Uh, He's a managing director and head of emerging market sales, and he just resigned after making money from investing in Doge. Some of you may know Dogecoin was backed by famous supporters, including Elon Musk, Snoop Dogg, and the Kiss bassist Gene Simmons. So (laughs) if you'd like for your investment philosophy to follow some steadfast, financially literate (laughs) celebrities like that, go ahead and look into it. This digital asset is based on an internet meme. And on this occasion, it's a dog called Doge. The cryptocurrency rose above 72 cents against the dollar last week in anticipation of Musk's SNL appearance, but it plunged more than 30% this week since the appearance to about 50 cents, according to Coindesk. However, that's still up by more than a thousand percent because a joke is born with no value until we decide that it has some. (laughs) Y'all, I have something to admit. (gasps) Do you? I bought 120,000 Dogecoin in 2018 and I sold it because, I don't know, it just took too long. But I bought it because I thought in this universe where Trump is elected and all these other things have (laughs) happened, it is absolutely 100 the case that Doge is going to take off because life is a cosmic joke. Like, life loves irony. So please, please carry on talking about how much money all these other people are making. (laughs) Right, right, right. Because you sold a little too early is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And, And that's the thing that I think is like where the real cognitive dissonance is. It took an executive at Goldman Sachs to know how to hold and sell because he has experience in emerging markets and emerging market sales. And so when you have high volatility, and this is me putting on a little bit of my money hat here, you have to approach it like a scholastic experience like you did, Way. But the key is to make sure that you have a benchmark in mind and at least liquidate 50% when you hit that benchmark, at least. So (laughs) we don't actually know how much money McMahon made from betting on Dogecoin, but (laughs) sources said they believed it was a substantial sum and Mm -hmm. he had since left Goldman Sachs. They believe he made this investing on his own personal account and was not involved in trading cryptocurrencies for the institution itself. You know, crypto, it's an interesting exercise. Right. Well, part of the deal is like it goes viral and becomes a thing that everybody's heard about. But like Way knows, it's been around for a while. Exactly. It's been a long time being worth nothing. 
And exactly. That's, <laughs> that's what people don't really recognize. They're like, oh, it's here and it's suddenly big. So the next thing that's suddenly here is going to be suddenly big. No. It's like, no, man. Exactly. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who have, you know, since Doge and Bitcoin have become increasingly mainstream are coming up with their own that are essentially scams or Ponzi schemes where they mm -hmm. know it has, you know, no intrinsic value. And that's true of all crypto. There is no intrinsic value. There's only the value that we or others ascribe to it. But those can be very fleeting. So be aware, do your homework, unless you want to go whole hog, in which case we just will agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from GQ.com and it's titled A Brief History of People Losing Their Minds in Antarctica. Ooh. <laughs> I imagine yeah. there's been a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always surprised that people can go there for extended periods and not lose their minds. So it's nice mm -hmm. to hear the other side here. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a little bit of a lengthy one, which I even cut down, but there's a fair amount because these stories are very lurid and entertaining. <laughs> uh, this is adapted from the book Madhouse at the End of the Earth by Julian Sancton. So on August 16th, 1897, more than 20,000 people flocked to the Antwerp waterfront to see off the Belgica, a three-mast whale ship setting sail for the largely uncharted waters of Antarctica. Seven months later, the Belgica was caught in the pack ice of the Bellinghausen Sea, and her men were condemned to be the first to endure an Antarctic winter. The sun set for the last time on May 17th. <laughs> the expedition's American surgeon, Dr. Frederick Cook, observed the suffering around him with an anthropologist's eye. He would later write, The long night with its potential capacity for tragedy makes a madhouse of every polar camp. Murder, suicide, starvation, insanity, icy death, and all the acts of the devil become regular mental pictures. Yikes! Yeah, so every man aboard hoped that the return of the sun in late July would ease the shipwide distress. Instead, symptoms grew more severe as it became obvious that the sun's rays were insufficient to loosen the ice's grip on the Belgica. For several men, in what would become a familiar pattern in Antarctica over the next 120 years, anguish gave way to insanity. Jan von Mirlo, his eyes glistening with fear, handed a note to the second engineer, Max van Risselberg. It read, I can't hear, I can't speak. Hmm. Van Risselberg was flabbergasted. He at first suspected a hoax because Van Merlo was notorious for his histrionics and mm -hmm. asked him a series of questions. When his fellow Fleming failed to respond, Van Risselberg took him straight to Cook's cabin. And after examining the patient, the doctor concluded that there was nothing wrong with Van Merlo's ears or vocal cords. The problem was with his mind. Cook ordered Van Merlo's crewmates to discreetly keep an eye on him in two-hour shifts, even at night. The deckhand did recover his speech and hearing within a week, but not his reason. Among the first <laughs> things he said when he rediscovered his voice was that he was going to murder his superior, Chief Engineer Henry Somers, as soon as he had the chance. Okay. Yeah, not a great time. Yeah. Van Merlo's <laughs> psychosis struck his shipmates at their core. He was simultaneously an augury of the worst that the men feared for themselves and a vector of fear. Mm-hmm. Soon after that, another sailor, Adam Tolfsen, began showing signs of severe paranoia. The Norwegian boatswain was among the most experienced and dependable seamen on the ship. He was accustomed to the cold and dark, having worked in the Arctic, and had performed his duties with skill, intelligence, and zeal. Tolfsen grew so suspicious of the other crewmates that he retreated to dark corners of the ship. He avoided the forecastle at night and slept instead in the freezing hold among the rats without a bed cover Aww. or proper winter clothes. Okay. Lapointe observed, odd mystery, 
the word chose, which is French for thing, infuriates him. Since he doesn't speak French, he imagines that chose means kill and that his companions have given each other signs to execute him. Oh, bless. So people who go mad in the Antarctic tend to go mad in similar ways. Those affected are prone to hallucinations and paranoid delusions. They often stray from the ship or the base without notifying their colleagues as if they believe they could walk back to civilization. And they are typically obsessed with violence, either threatening murder like Van Merlo or fearing it like Tolufsen or both. But a distinction must be made between winter over syndrome, a sense of brain fog and disorientation that amounts to a particularly acute form of cabin fever, and the rarer cases of actual psychosis, including Van Merlo's and Tolufsen's. Whereas those suffering from winter over syndrome tend to be listless and gloomy, the truly psychotic or typically frantic paranoid seeing enemies endangered around every corner. In many ways, their crises resemble a phenomenon observed in the Arctic not within overwintering expeditions, but rather among the men and women who lived in those forbidding regions year-round. From the 1880s until the 1920s, explorers documented dozens of cases of manic, delusional, sometimes violent behavior among the Inuit, the indigenous population of northern Greenland. The Inuit supposedly had a word to describe such episodes, P-block talk. The manifestations of this disorder are somewhat startling, wrote the American Arctic explorer Robert Perry, among the first Western explorers to describe it. The patient begins to scream and tear off and destroy her clothing. If on the ship, she will walk up and down the deck screaming and gesticulating and generally in a state of nudity, though the thermometer may be in the minus 40s. The attack may last a few minutes, an hour, or even more, and some sufferers become so wild that they would continue running about on the ice perfectly naked until they froze to death if they are not forcibly brought back. When an Inuit is attacked with Pibloktok indoors, nobody pays much attention unless the sufferer should reach for a knife or attempt to injure someone. So I guess they've seen this before, which is right. They're just kind of like, ah, this is a thing that happens. We get over yeah. it. <laughs> like- yeah. This is what it's like to live here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Early on, explorers and anthropologists tended to consider people talk as integral to the identity of the Inuit, like an exotic version of the hysteria, then thought to primarily afflict women. Mm-hmm. And Western doctors occasionally treated it with injections of mustard water. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Over the years, social scientists have proposed more plausible theories to explain it, none of which are fully satisfactory. Some believed it could be a form of shamanic trance, while others have attributed it to nutritional deficiency, and others still to brooding over absent relatives or fear of the future. Perhaps the most common explanation has been that Pibloktok was related, like winter over syndrome, to seasonal environmental factors, Mm -hmm. particularly to the cold and darkness of the Arctic winter. Well, you know, I was thinking that my first post-pandemic vacation would be to the Antarctic, but you've talked me out of it. Like, it's not going to happen now. I'm sorry, guys. Yeah. After reading this, I think that's probably wise. (laughs) Well, next link. Next link. All right. Well, what do you guys know about the invention of Flamin' Hot Cheetos? Ooh. Mm, I know that whoever came up with that spice mix really needs to package it as a standalone item so I can put it over popcorn, right. uh, cauliflower rice, literally anything. <laughs> well, there has been a somewhat famous story circulating on the internet for a few years, and that is that Richard Montañez, a humble Frito-Lay janitor, watched an inspirational video from CEO Roger Enrico about how every employee should act like owners and take charge of new ideas. 
So Montañez marched into Enrico's office and said, the Hispanic community is being ignored. We like hot and spicy stuff. And here, I've made you a sample of regular Cheetos that I've covered in my personal spice blend. The CEO says, OMG, these are amazing, and calls a meeting of like 100 executives at the company's Rancho Cucamonga complex to hear Montañez pitch his idea. The product turns into a big hit. Montañez gets promoted and ultimately ends up as a marketing executive for the whole company. Okay. Wow. And it's admittedly compelling, right? It's got rags to riches. It's got multiculturalism, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. ingenuity of the common man. And aside from being very popular on the internet, it's also made Montañez a lot of money. Once his story started going big, he retired in 2019 to focus full-time on speaking engagements, which pay between $10,000 and $50,000 each. He has a new memoir coming out next month from Penguin Random House, and there is a movie of his life story in the works set to be directed by Ava Longoria. Dang. Unfortunately, it's a lie. Oh, no. (laughs) And very conclusively so. No. (laughs) So initially, Montañez was telling this story in small speeches at like local business awards and philanthropic events, and he was doing it for about a decade before it went viral. So, you know, he's giving these speeches in like 2008, but he's talking about events that took place back in 1989. So there's really nobody still at the company by that point who Mm -hmm. remembers otherwise. Mm -hmm. And he gets away with it for a long time. The story doesn't go viral until about 2018, at which point it appears in a blog post on Esquire.com where it's seen by Lynn Greenfeld, who says, hold up. I invented Flamin' Hot Cheetos and I can prove it. Oh, the receipt. Yes. So at the time, back in 1989, she was a junior employee fresh out of her MBA program, and she was working in the single serve group, which was specifically responsible for these small bagged impulse buy items sold in mini marts and bodegas and basically anything that wasn't a grocery store. Okay. And one of the salesmen working the beat in the Chicago area told the marketing department that they were losing shelf space and getting hammered by these really small local brands that sold spicy stuff. He told marketing that they needed a spicy product, and the development project got assigned to Greenfeld. And multiple employees working there at the time have corroborated that Greenfeld came up with the name, she came up with the little chubby devil graphic, and in fact, (laughs) they were selling three products simultaneously. They had Flamin' Hot Cheetos, Flamin' Hot Fritos, and Flamin' Hot Lays. (gasps) All three products launched in August of 1990, and Frito-Lay has an officially registered trademark for Flamin' Hot established at that time. All of which is a problem for Montañez because his whole story doesn't even take place until 1992. Oh, dear. And in fact, Enrico, the CEO who he says inspired him, didn't even work for Frito-Lay when they filed their Flamin' Hot trademark in 1990. (sighs) Oh, no. Now, there are some parts of Montañez's story that are true. He did start working for Frito-Lay as a janitor in the late 1970s, although he had been promoted a few times before 1992. And he really did call Enrico after the Act Like Owners video and say, we need to get more products aimed at the Hispanic market. And when all of this started coming out, Montañez sort of adjusted his story and was like, well, maybe there was some kind of existing spicy product line, but they changed the seasonings based on what I was pitching to Enrico. Mm. Except the corporate office of Frito-Lay has since released documents showing that the Flamin' Hot Spice Mixture was developed for them by McCormick Spices, And a sample was first delivered to Frito-Lay in December of 1989, and it's basically identical to what's used today. Oh, boy. So that's also a lie. Oh, goodness. (laughs) What Enrico did do was put Montañez on a new line of Hispanic-aimed products called Sabrositas. 
And the Sabrositas line did include flaming Hot Popcorn. So it does exist, Angie. You could get hey, it. Hey, okay, all right. But it used the existing seasoning to put it on a new product. Sure. They also had lime and chili flavored Fritos and a Dorito that was flavored kind of like a churro. It was sweet. And mm. these products did pretty well in the Los Angeles area, but they've since been discontinued. And, mm. you know, it's still a rags to riches success story. He really did start out as a janitor and move all the way up to marketing executive. And it seems like he did have some out-of-the-box ideas that helped the company along the way, but he did not invent Flamin' Hot Cheetos. Okay, so what does this mean for his upcoming autobiography and movie based on... (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, he keeps doubling down on his story in pretty terrible ways. (laughs) At one point, he posted a picture to his Instagram account that was supposed to be like an old photo. It was like a couple of piles of Cheetos with some stuff sprinkled on them. And he'd signed his name on a piece of paper and written 1988. Because that's what you do when you have an idea, right? (laughs) Is you like sign your name and date it and take a picture with your 1988 roll of film (laughs) camera. And, you know, like it was a really terrible attempt. And people obviously called him out on it really quickly because he since deleted the photo. Oh, my goodness. I guess at this point he feels like it's too late to be like, whoops, sorry, guys. I meant Sabrositas. You ever heard of those? (laughs) (laughs) And as for the memoir in the film, the memoir is still coming out next month. (laughs) Uh, Penguin Random House basically released this sort of neutral PR statement that was like, the book is Montañez's personal recollection of his life. And if that's what people want to hear, then they should check out his book book you know <laughs> like, wow and nice walk back waddle there penguin yeah and the movie they sort of released a statement that was more like our intent has always been to tell the true story but they were really they didn't want to get involved i mean they're already involved is the problem yeah exactly i mean their choice at this point is to just cancel the whole project or turn it into like an expose documentary of like how this guy lied and was brought down by internet sleuths. I know. I mean, what a pivot, though, to be like, actually, he's a liar. Like, I don't know if that's really the narrative that they'd rather solidify around, despite that being the truth. Yeah. And I, you know, I admit it makes me want to try Flamin' Hot Cheetos. I've never had them before. You've never had I haven't. Hot no. I, of wow. course, they seem pretty good, I guess. Everybody the- likes Way it. was actually present for my very first time trying them because oh. it was during one of our D&D groups. Do you remember this way? Yeah, I brought them <laughs> yes he was the one responsible for it and i was like huh i've never tried this and then after eating like half the bag i was like i will never be the same <laughs> you're like covered in red powder you're like give me more yep. <laughs> yeah i actually saw somebody comment about this story of this being fake on twitter and they were talking about how of all the reveals this is the one that really gut punched them Aww, and right? <laughs> <laughs> i feel like it's because in a weird way hot cheetos at least to me seem to be part of like the fabric of a American culture, which either says something (laughs) significant about America or about me, but I'll take it either way. (laughs) Well, I mean, what could be more American than somebody claiming credit for something that they didn't actually do? That's true. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, NPR is reporting that blind patients are hoping a landmark gene editing experiment will restore their vision, which is pretty amazing and promising. What is unique about this is that this experiment uses CRISPR to edit genes while they are still inside the body. Hmm. So right now it's already being used and showing a lot of promise for blood disorders like sickle cell disease, and it's even being tested for certain forms of cancer. 
But Dr. Lisa Michaels, the chief medical officer at the company sponsoring the study, said, we're actually delivering the gene editing apparatus to the part of the body where the disease takes place in order to correct it. So by the end of the year, the researchers said they expect to share the first data on whether the procedure restored any vision for the patients. So this is for people who were born with a form of Leber congenital amaurosis, which destroys light-sensing cells in the retina. And they've been able to find out that a defect in a gene called CEP290 causes the version of the disease with which these two participants were born. And it affects about 15 to 30,000 people worldwide. And in this condition, they have no peripheral vision whatsoever. It means they can only see straight ahead and about the size of a pencil lead. So it's like a tiny little pinprick of straight ahead vision only. So traditional gene therapy is also impossible for this condition because a healthy version of the defective gene is too big to fit into the genetically modified viruses that are used to ferry these new genes into people's bodies. So doctors made three small incisions in the right eye of one patient and in the left eye of another patient so they could infuse billions of copies of a harmless virus. And each virus has been engineered to carry genetic instructions to manufacture the CRISPR gene editor inside the retina. So it's almost like a virus as a, I can't even say floppy disk because that may not resonate with some of our (laughs) (laughs) But you get it. It's like a little USB drive delivered through viruses. Right, because it's not just the gene. It's the instructions to cut the old gene, put the new gene in. Like it's the whole CRISPR package. Exactly, exactly. So they're hoping that CRISPR can act like a microscopic surgeon, literally slicing out the genetic mutation in cells in their retinas. And that should, trigger production of a protein that could restore the function of the light-sensing cells in their retina, which would not only prevent any further loss of vision, but hopefully restore at least some of their lost vision. Quote, it sounds a little bit like science fiction to be injecting billions of virus particles under the retina so they can go make spelling corrections of the gene (laughs) inside a patient's own retinal cells. But it's really happening. Wow. <laughs> so when do we find out if it worked? Like how do how far along are they? They're hoping to get some more information by the end of this year. Okay. Obviously, this is super, super new right. and CRISPR is super cutting edge. Um, as a safety precaution, the doctor started by using the lowest number of viruses carrying the CRISPR instructions in older patients who <clears throat> had the least to lose because their vision was already extensively oh. damaged. Oh. I know, right? <laughs> yeah, I was very skeptical at first when you started talking about this because, (laughs) well, because I know that when you lose sight for a long time, even if you later restore it, the parts of your brain that are dedicated to receiving that information have moved on. They've been reassigned to other stuff. And so you can't actually get your sight back. Like I have a friend Mm -hmm. who had like some congenital thing when he was born. And by the time he was about three, they were like, okay, he's old enough for surgery. They gave him the surgery, but he never could see out of that eye, even though he should have been able to. But If these are people who had vision and it was slowly degenerating, then, uh, you know, possibly their brain hasn't moved on, especially if they're older. And so they can kind of backtrack a little bit. And that would be amazing. Yeah, there are still a lot of variables. And this is the first time that we're trying it. So hopefully we'll have a lot more data and learnings to apply in our (laughs) in our lifelong mission to eradicate all disease. That's right. (laughs) And we'll talk less about cutting into eyeballs and more about just an injection. (laughs) And let's not talk about where the injection was. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link.
This article comes to us from The Walrus, and it's titled, Having More Nightmares Lately? You're Not Alone. Okay. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really <laughs> doubling down on the psychological horror this episode. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> So according to Deirdre Barrett, assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and author of Pandemic Dreams, our collective nocturnal journeys are now steeped in our daily anxieties and insecurities about COVID-19 and maskless dreams have recently become the most common theme. The oops, I don't have my mask on dream has replaced the oops, I'm out in public and I'm naked dream, Barrett explains. (laughs) Barrett has been tracking the dreams of over 3,700 English-speaking adults, mostly from North America, France, and Italy, via an online study that began in March 2020. Early on, the dream themes were straightforward. Visions about getting COVID-19 and not being able to access medical treatment were frequent. So too were more symbolic Hitchcockian scenes that saw the invisible illness morph into terrifying bug attacks. Mm. Yep. So when lockdowns and sheltering in place started in North America, Barrett noticed a pattern. Those living alone reported extreme dreams about being cut off from the world. They were sent to space and abandoned on another planet. On the flip side, people locked down in close proximities with families or roommates were attacked by crowding and claustrophobia. Mm -hmm. Barrett says, There were multiple dreams where the whole neighborhood has moved into the dreamer's house. (laughs) One woman couldn't walk through her house because there were so many cots set up, and another was trying to use her toilet, and she couldn't close (gasps) the bathroom door because everyone's stuff was jammed in the doorway. Yeah. And these people were likely experiencing a cool term, which I've never heard before, called a loneliness, where they craved but could not get time to themselves. <gasps> That's my new favorite word, y'all. Yeah. That yeah. right that, there. <laughs> add that to your dictionary. Uh-huh. Many of Barrett's respondents reported dreams about homeschooling, but those didn't come from students. They were all from mothers. Mm -hmm. Absolutely all. (laughs) Uh, One woman dreamed about failing her son's math class. Another received a message from her 10-year-old school that the entire class was being sent to her house. She would have to homeschool them all for the rest of the pandemic. So... It's no surprise that mothers are having nightmares about homeschooling. Uh, Many of them have been forced to leave the workforce altogether due to insecure employment, layoffs, or to accommodate the demands of our new realities. Mm -hmm. The Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto has been conducting an ongoing national survey that tracks pandemic mental health, and it's found that the mental health gender gap forged early in the pandemic has been reinforced, and women report higher levels of anxiety and loneliness. Parents with children under 18 are also feeling more depressed than those without. Relentless nightmares are rare, however, and most of us won't require therapy to help our oneric states, but anyone experiencing unwanted bad dreams may want to consider dream incubation. Solomonova describes dream incubation as a process of setting an intention to dream about a specific theme. It's a technique that's been around for thousands of years, actually. Ancient Greeks and Romans used to bring sick people to temples and have them pray to Asclepios, god of medicine, healing, and prophecy, in the hope that he would send them inspired dreams to inform their recoveries. Uh, For us moderns, Barrett's advice is simple. Think about what you want to dream and pick out something that would be as happy, peaceful, and calming as possible. According to Barrett, people can even attempt to solve their waking problems by asking questions for their resting minds to answer. It can be a more serious, involved question like, I want to have a dream that shows me how to stop having these repetitive arguments with my spouse. Hmm. Or you form the image of what you want to dream on in your mind and focus on it until you drift off. All right. Well, I'm praying to Asclepius from now on, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I welcome the oops, not wearing pants anxiety dream, which sounds like a picnic compared to what we're dealing with right now. Right. Yeah. Next link. Next, Next link. link. 
All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up with something very short and very disturbing. Oh, <laughs> you may have seen this one making the rounds online. I know I saw several versions of it. It's called Pigs and Rodents Can Breathe Through Their Butts in Emergencies. Hooray! Oh, yeah. Good news, everyone. <laughs> and the subtitle, by the way, is a masterclass in understatement. It says, the recent study does make for a fun trivia fact. So, <laughs> of course, breathe through their butts is not a scientific term. And the official title of the new study published in the journal Med is Mammalian Enteral Ventilation Ameliorates Respiratory Failure. <laughs> Senior study author Takanori Takebe of the Tokyo Medical and Dental University and the Cincinnati Children's Hospital defended his actions by saying artificial respiratory support plays a vital role in the clinical management of respiratory failure. And basically what they did is they, quote, engineered an intestinal gas ventilation system to administer pure oxygen through the rectum of mice, which is to say oh. they stuck an oxygen tube up their butts and then they put them in a container with no oxygen to breathe. Oh. After nearly an hour, 75% of the mice were still alive. Oh, my god! Meaning they were absorbing enough oxygen through their colons to function whether or not life was worth living at that point. Oh. <laughs> but here's the real kicker. Now, scientists are hoping their new system could be applied to humans, particularly during the pandemic. COVID has notoriously resulted in a shortage of ventilators and other breathing equipment, and it's possible <laughs> that lives could be saved, y'all, by nothing more than a tube of oxygen straight up the tukus. Hmm. Yeah. So see, it sounds like a completely frivolous article, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, that could actually help. I mean, I do like to sleep on my stomach. <laughs> I think it's fair to say there's going to be a lot of farting going on in that hospital ward. Oh, yeah. But, you know, a better farting than dead, though, I guess. <laughs> That's true. Oh, I'm going to get that one tattooed. That's right. This is the future our grandparents were hoping yeah. for. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include how a CIA trap for bin Laden led to vaccine hesitancy in Pakistan. The secret role histones played in complex cell evolution, and Mexico City could sink up to 65 feet. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.